Welcome to the De-School Yourself podcast, healing the 15,000-hour infliction of public school. Hosted by Zach Slayback and Jeff Till. This installment is called When You Were Free to Learn, featuring Dr. Peter Gray. I used to teach people how to write computer programs in New Delhi 14 years ago. And right next to where I used to work, there was a slum. And I used to think, how, how on earth are those kids ever going to learn to write computer programs? Or are they, should they not? At the same time, we also had lots of parents, rich people, who had computers, and who used to tell me, you know, my son, um, I think he's gifted, because, you know, he does wonderful things with computers. And my daughter, oh, surely she, she's, you know, extra intelligent, and so on. So I suddenly figured that how come all the rich people are having these extraordinary gifted children? <laughs> what did the poor do wrong? <laughs> I made a hole in the, in the boundary wall of the slum next to my office and I stuck a computer inside it just to see what would happen if I gave a computer to children who never would have one, didn't know any English, didn't know what the internet was. The children came running in, it was three feet off the ground, and they said, what is this? And I said, yeah, but it's, uh, you know, I don't know. So <laughs> they said, um, why have you put it there? I said, just like that. And they said, can we touch it? I said, if you wish to. And I went away. About eight hours later, we found them browsing and teaching each other how to browse. So I said, but that's impossible. Because, you know, how, how is it possible? They don't know anything. My colleagues said, no, it's a simple solution. One of your students must have been passing by, showed them how to use the mouse. So I said, yeah, that's possible. So I repeated the experiment. I went 300 miles out of Delhi into a really remote village where the chances of a, you know, a passing software development engineer <laughs> were, <laughs> was very little. <laughs> I repeated the experiment there. There was no place to stay, so I stuck my computer in, I went away, came back after a couple of months, found kids playing games on it. When they saw me, they said, we want a faster processor and a better mouse. <laughs> so, so I said, how on earth do you know all this? And they said something very interesting to me. In an irritated voice, they said, you've given us a machine that works only in English, so we had to teach ourselves English in order to use it. <laughs> so, that was Sugatra Mitra with his TED Talk, Build a School in the Cloud. And it's become a fairly famous story about a man who experimented with putting computers uh, un unattended into rural Indian communities and seeing the amazing things that children learn on their own. I thought it would be fitting for this episode. This installment focuses on in the beginning and basically how just about everybody started out their life as a natural learner. There was the five years that people experienced before going to school where they had self-directed learning, mostly through play. Children are put in school at five because it represents the, the shift from being a terrible to uh, preschooler who's prone to unmanageable fits about just about anything uh, into a fairly rational and workable human uh, in that nice age of latency between the ages of about 5 and 12 before serious changes occur uh, for puberty. Zach and I were going to base most of our content for this podcast around a really good book called Free to Learn, written by Dr. Peter Gray. 
Instead of just going through the content in his book, we reached out to Dr. Gray and asked him if he would want to be on the show, and he very kindly agreed to do it. Dr. Gray is a university professor and is also a has a blog on Psychology Today. I'm going to read you his bio from Psychology Today. Peter Gray, PhD, research professor at Boston College, is author of Free to Learn and Psychology, which is a college textbook now in its seventh edition. He has conducted and published research in comparative, evolutionary, developmental, and educational psychology. He did his undergraduate study at Columbia University and earned a PhD in biological sciences at Rockefeller University. His current research and writing focus primarily on children's natural ways of learning and the lifelong value of play. His own play includes not only his research and writing, but also long-distance bicycling, kayaking, backwoods skiing, and vegetable gardening. He is the author of the book Free to Learn, and the description of this book, available on Amazon and your favorite bookstore, is children come into the world with instinctive drives to educate themselves. These include the drives to play and explore. This blog is primarily about the, these drives and ways by which we can we could create learning environments that optimize rather than suppress them. So you can find that blog at psychologytoday.com. Dr. Gray is also a founder of a new initiative called the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. A little bit from their website. Imagine what would happen if instead of sending children to coercive schools where their natural ways of learning are curtailed, we provided them with the resources that would allow their curiosity, playfulness, and other natural ways of learning to flourish. That is self-directed education, that education that derives from the self-chosen activities and life experiences of the learner. The Alliance for Self-Directed Education is a nonprofit organization dedicated to normalizing and legitimizing self-directed education to make it available to everyone who seeks it and you can join you can go to self-directed.org and you can sign up for their e-newsletter and see what they have and i believe there might be somewhere where you can even donate money to um, yeah it's right here you can donate at the website uh, so without further delay i will give you in its entirety zach and i's conversation with dr peter gray I'm uh, an evolutionary psychologist, which means I'm interested in human nature, and um, I'm especially interested in children's nature. And I look at human nature and children's nature from the from a Darwinian perspective. Um, uh, why is it that children are the way they are? <laughs> you know, why is it that they are? so curious right from the right from birth on they're just exploring everything as soon as they have a new way to move they're using that movement to explore the world in new ways they're so playful why is it that they why is it that children all over the world want to play and play in similar ways all over the world they want to play with other kids they want to play at risky things they want to play at building things they why do they play in all those ways, wherever they are and wherever they're free to do so? You know, why are they so so willful? Why is mm. it that they want to do what they want to do? Wouldn't they be better off kind of wanting to do, wanting to please us and do what we tell them to do? You know, why is it that they want to be in control of their own lives right from the beginning almost? Um, 
their sociability. They're so they're they're curious about everything, but they're especially curious about people. They want to know what other people know. They want to be able to do what other people do. So I look at all of this and I say, look, these are these are the characteristics that were that evolved over by natural selection in our human history for the purpose of education. You know, we're we're different from any other species in that we are the animal that absolutely depends on education. We can't survive without it. We, we are the animal that depends upon acquiring the skills, the values, the knowledge, the lore of the previous generations. And that's what education is, that acquisition of all of the, of, of the cumulative skills and knowledge, the use of the tools of the culture and so on into which we're born. We can't just do the same things that all human beings do everywhere. We have to do also the things that are unique to our culture. So the way I look at children is they come into the world biologically designed to look around, to pay attention, to see what their world is like, to see who's successful in their world and what do they do, how do, how do they manage and how can I be like that. They're designed to play with other kids because that's how they learn to get along with peers. They have, that's, that's a, probably the most important human skill. You know, we can't survive alone. We absolutely require um, friends, we require colleagues, collaborators, um, and so right from the beginning, or at least by the age of three or four, children are very strongly motivated to be playing with other children, and as time goes on, that motivation becomes even stronger. Um, they're learning how to, how to please another person while also pleasing themselves. That's one of the great lessons of social play. You have to please your playmate or else they'll leave you and you'll be all alone. So, um, and what could be more important to learn than that? They're, they're playing at the kinds of skills often that are important to their culture. So, in a hunter-gatherer culture, they're playing with bows and arrows and knives and digging sticks and dugout canoes. And our culture, today, of course, they're playing with computers. Why not? The computer is the primary tool of our culture, but they're also playing with a lot of the other things that they see are valuable tools of our culture, and they're playing at the kinds of skills that are necessary to acquire. So that's kind of a quick survey of my perspective. The way I look mm -hmm. at it, children are really designed to educate themselves. Their whole nature serves that purpose. We don't have to educate them. We don't have to think of education as something that we do to children. What we need to do is to provide the conditions that optimize their ability to educate themselves. Of course, they can't educate themselves if they're raised in a closet. They can't educate themselves fully if they are if their environment is restricted and they're not having the full opportunity to engage themselves with the, with all, with the full range of skills and ideas that are out there in the culture in which they're growing up. So we need to provide those opportunities and that's the way we adults ought to be thinking about children's education. How can we provide the opportunities that 
optimize our children's ability to learn through their natural curiosity, their playfulness, their sociability. You know, it's interesting mm -hmm. to know that when we put children in school, these instincts that I've just described, their instinct to explore and play and be sociable, these are all cut off. You know, we don't, we don't foster their curiosity. Their questions don't count once they're in school. They're supposed to be paying attention to the questions of the curriculum, which when you come down to it, aren't even really generally questions that the teacher's interested in. You know, the teacher just has this assignment that, that they have to teach this curriculum and the students have to learn it and the teacher's being measured on the student's ability to learn it. And uh, you can't be curious in that situation where you're not pursuing your own questions, you're pursuing some question that somebody else says you have to pursue. And there's no way that 20 or 30 kids in a classroom can all be curious about the same thing at the same time. So curiosity gets shut off. Playfulness, if it occurs at all, is at recess, which is increasingly being cut out. You know, and that's not regarded as part of the learning. That's a break from learning, right? You mm -hmm. know, nobody's thinking of play as the way children learn when they're in school. And sociability, you know, you're there with all these other kids, but you're not really allowed to talk to them. You're not really, you know, and you're not really allowed to collaborate with them. That's cheating, right? If you help somebody else <laughs> do their work, that's cheating. Or if you ask somebody else for help. And yet, we're the species that's designed to collaborate. It ought to all be about collaboration. So what our schools do, and I don't think it's any accident that they do this, you know, that what our schools do is they essentially take away the conditions that children need to educate themselves, and then they use rewards and punishments to put the children through their paces with the aim of, quote, educating them unquote, um, which really means teaching them a certain limited set of skills and knowledge that the curriculum has decided is important. And this is an extremely inefficient way of getting kids to learn things like reading and calculation and so on. Extremely inefficient because they're, the kids are just doing it out of this um, reward and punishment motivation. They're not intrinsically motivated when you do it this way. And psychologists have shown over and over and over again that when you learn in that way because of some extrinsic reward for doing it, you're not learning it in a way that is deeply learned. You're learning it in a kind of shallow way to pass the test, get the reward, avoid the punishment, and then you go on to the next thing. Do, do you think, um, how, do, how do you think children feel about this? Because I, I experience a lot of the neighbor kids and, and all of them uh, go to school except for mine. And they don't seem to see the environment around them unless you really ask them about whether they like school or whether they're learning. But what has been your impression about how children feel in that environment and outside that environment. Yeah. Well, I think that most children, just like most adults in our culture, believe that school is good for them. You know, we we you know, we're constantly hearing that propaganda and they're constantly this belief school is good for you, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think that many children have sort of what I call the bad tasting medicine view of school. It, it may not be that pleasant, but it's something that's good for me. And so I need to do it. And, um, and you know, people, children are pretty adaptable beings. <laughs> and most children, um, in some way or another, find a way to adapt to it and find a way to um, make the best of it in a certain sense. Um, but not everybody can do that, and large numbers of children can't do that, and they are really unhappy in school. I also think it depends on the age that you're looking at, um, although it's now the case, I think, that even young children are um, being put through uh, really kind of rigorous paces in school and are probably developing more and more hatred for it. It wasn't that long ago that typically elementary school kids, if you ask them, they would say they like school. It's where I see my friends and I like my teacher and we do fun things. We do art and music and we have quite a bit of recess and, um, and so on. Uh, but then by middle school and high school, things begin to change and then you begin to hear a lot of grumbling about school. Uh, so I, I don't know, I haven't done any kind of recent um, studies of this sort, so, but my guess is that school, you know, it wasn't that long ago that little kids tended to, to be not that negative about school, older kids tended to be very negative. You know, there was a study that I cite in my book um, done a few years ago uh, with middle school kids, hundreds of kids from many different schools where they were wearing um, beepers that at random times over the course of a week would beep and when they when it beeped they were to write down where they were what they were doing what their mood was yes. and the result of that study was that when they they were least happy they were most bored most stressed most angry when they were in school. Of all the settings they were in, school was the was the setting that made them least happy by far. So here, isn't that interesting? You know, we require kids to go to school with the idea that this is where they're going to learn. Do we really think that a setting where they are less happy than any place else is the setting in which? which is the ideal setting for children to learn what they need to know in life. I don't know if that study would had been done in elementary school, whether you would have gotten the same results. I'm quite sure if you did it in high school, you would have gotten the same results. Yeah, well, with young children, the public's, you know, kindergarten and first grade, you know, especially there's still a lot of art. Uh, there's still resor uh, re recess three times a day. And, you know, not until middle school does they, they really sort of ratchet down on that, that 45 minute per subject uh, march uh, through the day. How, with, with such an unhappy experience, how, how do parents still so quickly and so thoughtlessly send their kids to school, at, even, even if they can reflect upon this, this horrible experience that they had? Well, you with, know, with we feeling? are... We are social and cultural animals, and our natural tendency, unless there's something very strong that jars us out of this, our natural tendency is to do what everybody else does. 
And schools have been around now for several generations. So for most people, their parents went to school, their grandparents went to school, maybe their great-grandparents went to school, everybody goes to school. There is this cultural belief, this cultural propaganda about school. You hear it from everybody from the president on down who's saying more school is better. <laughs> you know, that we, we, need, we need school. So we, we have this belief that runs through everything that school is simply an essential part of growing up. And we don't have many examples of people who are testing that belief by doing something different. So most people don't know any examples, or if they do know an example, it's just one or two, and they think of that as somewhat strange, or maybe though that's a kind of unique set of kids, not like my kids, not like most kids. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe those kids do okay because they kind of have a self-motivation that's sort of unique to them, but... My kids wouldn't be like that. Uh, I think I've heard that from a lot of from a lot yeah. of parents. Yeah, um, I, a lot of. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, a lot of homeschooling or unschooling apologists uh, almost frame frame that we're almost trying to come out with the same outcomes as the the school system, so that you know that's even the question I get as a as a homeschooler is, uh, you know, w how will they get their their diploma and be ready to go onto you know university uh when they're when they're 18 years old and the the point of, of homeschooling in my opinion is not to create the same output as the schooling system does and your 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 uh, your children uh had had a a, a self-directed learning experience was it your ex what was your expectation there is was it to create something equal to school or something better than school or just something happier than school do you understand what i'm I'm getting at. Sure. Yeah. Well, my um, my uh, I have just one uh, biological son, and uh, he went to the Sudbury Valley School, which is a school for self-directed education, where he was in charge of his own learning. He went there from age ten on, after rebelling in the public school and essentially forcing his mother and me to find something else. He was. Mm -hmm. He was very, very good at making his point about that and getting out of school. He saw school as prison. To him, it was absolutely prison. He saw it that way from kindergarten on. Unfortunately, uh, his slow-witted father and mother, me and his mother, uh, took longer to come to that realization and to help rescue him from that situation and enroll him in this other situation. Now. Let me say that while, yes, indeed, I think that um, that we should be looking for a different kind of outcome than what regular school is looking for. On the other hand, let me admit and, and, um, and let me also show understanding why most parents would not want to take a step with their kids if they believe that it's going to cut off certain kinds of conventional options. Mm -hmm. So if you believe that if I took my kids out of school, they could never go to college, well, that, you know, that's a, a serious limitation. Maybe things will change in the future, but right now, if you want to be a doctor or you want to be a lawyer or you want to, you know, there's a whole range of careers that a lot of people might want to go into at some point. 
that really pretty mm -hmm. much require college. Um, in theory, you could go right directly to medical school, prepare yourself to medical school, but medical schools are not really set up to do that right now, <laughs> and uh, I, I think that it would be a risky approach to do. So it was very important to me when we found the Sudbury Valley School, which is essentially a school for, for unschooling, <laughs> you know, it's a, mm -hmm place where children are in charge of their own education. Um, it was very important to me to, uh, to discover that indeed the graduates of the school don't have any particular difficulty going on to college if they want to do that. They can do, they can go to any of the kinds of careers that are valued in our, in our culture. Uh, so I did a study of the graduates of the school many years ago. It was while my son was still a in his uh, first or second year as a student there. Um, and that was not a disinterested study. I was curious. I really needed to know that my son's options were not being limited by his going to a school where he would not get a conventional diploma, where he would not like he would likely not do any courses. <laughs> he would not be studying any textbooks. He would not be taking tests. He would not be doing all of these things that we think of as schooling. So I did that study, and even at that time, this is many years ago, there were many graduates of the school. I did the study. I found, lo and behold, they've gone on to all sorts of careers. Those who wanted to go to college didn't have any particular difficulty getting in or doing well in college. Um, you know, which is, when you think of it, absolutely remarkable. I mean, here we, we have this view, many people have this view, you miss a few days of school and you're going to fall hopelessly <laughs> yeah. behind. Yeah. You know, here are people missing the whole darn thing, and they're going on to college and they're not behind, you know. Yeah, I know. So, or what, if they are, they're catching up very, very quickly. Uh, kids who've never studied math at all in their life, they now want to go to college and they need to take the math uh, SAT test um, and they learn the math in a few weeks <laughs> that they need to know, mostly on their own. Uh, the difference between somebody who's decided that they want to learn something, even if it's just for the sake of getting into college, even if they have no great long-term interest in math, let's say, they can learn it so much more quickly, so much more uh, meaningfully uh, when they want to do it than when it's forced upon them. So, um, so I think that it, I think that it is um, important for parents who are taking this step to realize you really are not limiting your child's future. I think some people think, well, you know, that's all fine and good if you're going to be a musician or you're going to be an artist. These things, you know, they can understand why people would naturally gravitate towards these things that are so fun uh, and interesting for most children and why they might become skilled at it. But here, you know, there are, there are people who've been uh, gone to Sudbury Valley School and, and similar schools and who've been unschooled, who go on in everything, in the sciences, in math. One of the graduates of my initial study is a math professor. People who become doctors, lawyers, conventional kinds of careers. Now, there's this idea in schooling that I, I think a lot of people internalize that things need to be learned at certain stages of life, right? So a third grader needs to read at this level, a fourth grader needs to read at this level. 
and there's a story in one of the books on the Sudbury Valley School that's by uh, the founder about, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this story, but it's about a, a young man who was at the school and for like three or four years straight, he just wanted to fish. He was just very, very, very interested in fishing. And a lot of people, they see that, and I've talked to parents who they have a, a child that's very like myopically interested in one thing for a year, two years, three years, and you start to worry, oh, how are they going to learn the things they need to learn? And in this individual's case, you know, one day he just decided, oh, I'm interested in computer programming, and now he's a, a computer engineer somewhere <laughs> professionally. Right. So I, I want, if you can, can you talk a little bit more about this idea that when people actually choose what choose to learn things that they're interested in, that they can learn a lot faster. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in one of the problems, uh, uh, one of the reasons, of course, that um, that our standard schools uh, are so poor and <laughs> you know they operate so inefficiently is the expectation is everybody's supposed to learn the same things at the same time. So. Everybody's supposed to learn to read when they're three, certainly, I mean, when they're six, certainly by the time you're seven or eight, you should be able to read because then the whole rest of the curriculum depends upon reading. So if you are going to a standard school, it's pretty important that you learn to read when everybody else does or else you'll, you will be behind and you'll be kind of identified as one of the dumb kids um, and that, that label may stay with you in some sense through your whole rest of your life. But if you are going, if you are um, unschooling, or if you're going to a school like Sudbury Valley where there is no curriculum, you, you do what you want to do, you follow your own interests, it turns out there's no value in learning to read early. There's no deficit in it either. I mean, some kids learn to read early, some kids learn to read, yeah, just as happens everywhere when they're four years old or even younger. Some kids, however, don't learn to read until considerably later. And it turns out that there's no, you know, there's a, people sometimes think there's sort of critical periods in development for learning certain things. The one critical period that is well established is there's a critical period for learning your native language without an accent. If you learn a language later on in life, you know, beyond the age of about 10 or 12 or something like that, you tend to carry an accent with you um, throughout throughout your life unless you really work at overcoming it. So language learning seems to, to some degree have a critical period, but there's no critical period for anything else. There's no critical period for learning to read. Adults, you know, in illiterate societies, adults who will who decide they want to learn to read can learn to read very quickly. Kids of any age who haven't learned to read can learn to read. There is absolutely no critical period for learning mathematical concepts. And there's some reason to think, and certainly my observations seem to bear this out, that the more you delay this, the easier it is to learn it. Um, there's, you know, the, for the kids that I've observed who are 16, 17, 18 years old and are decided they want to study mathematics for the sake of the SAT, they pick it up so much more quickly, so much more readily than younger kids who have been forced through this stuff <laughs> and are going through it painfully. Yeah. So there, there's no reason to think there's a critical period. In my mind, there's no reason to learn anything <laughs> unless, A, you are just so interested in it and so much want to learn it that you, you really almost need to do it then because you want to do it or because something else that you want to do requires that you learn that. 
Well, we can take mathematics, for example. There's no sense in learning a mathematical procedure unless, A, you just really want, you just see this as a fascinating puzzle, and you just enjoy figuring out how to solve these mathematical problems, or B, you are into something, you're doing something, whether it's a computer game or whether it's uh, cooking and you need to cut recipes into three-fourths or two-thirds or whatever, or, or, uh, you're, or you're involved in some kind of at, later on in life and some kind of science uh, work that requires a certain kind of mathematics, that's the time to learn it when you need it. And when you need it, you're motivated to learn it, and you're learning it specifically for the purpose that you have. So it's important to you. And it it's learning is so much more efficient when you do it that way. So this idea that we have to learn everything in some sort of preparation for some future that may or may not ever be is just really wasting children's time, sapping their energy, and creating negative attitudes about about learning. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, a, a classic example, you know, that I'm all, always referring to is quadratic equations. You know, everybody, every adult who's been through high school studied how to solve quadratic equations. Well, how many adults even remember what a quadratic equation is. Well, even when I ask this to groups of scientists, most of them have no idea, even physicists, you know. <laughs> they don't know what a quadratic equation is. They've never faced one in their life. There are some people who, uh, I assume, I can't verify this, who are, I assume there are some people out there who are doing work that actually requires quadratic equations, maybe one person out of 10,000. Well, that's the person who learns it on the job. Just as most scientists learn whatever kind of math they need, they learn it in relationship to that need. We talk about natural learning and self-directed learning and the, you know, kind of the joy and imperative learning when you really need to learn something. When kids are put through 15,000 hours of just the opposite of that, does, do you think, and you can speak anecdotally, does that change an adult's ability to enjoy learning or to know how to pursue learning on their own? Yeah, I, I think it, I think it does. And I think prob perhaps it does now more than ever. I think that, um, in the past, you know, when I was a kid in the 1950s, so now you've got an idea how old I am, um, school didn't occupy most of our time. Um, is the school year was shorter, the school day was shorter, we didn't have homework, certainly not in elementary school. We had some homework in high school, but not nearly as much as today. We didn't have honors classes and, and advanced placement classes, all these things that pile on the homework. Um, and we didn't have this notion that you're supposed to do certain specific uh, extracurricular activities to make your resume look good to get into college or need to do these volunteer activities that aren't actually truly volunteer activities but are things that you're encouraged to do to make your resume look good again for getting into college where kids time is just being filled you know so kids when I was growing up had time to to, for hobbies, had time for play, had time to develop interests, had time to pursue things on their own. We didn't have reading lists in the summer 
the school telling us that we're even in our summer we're supposed to read what they want us to read rather than what we want to read so most kids growing up developed real interests and and they would learn things in relation to that interest and then once school was out that that those abilities that they developed out of school, the curiosities they developed out of school could persist. But nowadays, for kids who take school seriously, uh, who do what the adults want them to do, they don't really have much time to develop any real interest. You know, we talk about you know, the typical graduation speech, whether it's graduation from high, high school or from college, is follow your passions, right? Pursue your passions. <laughs> yeah. Don't be afraid well, how do you develop passions, you know, if you're spending all your time doing what you're supposed to do in school? There's not really much opportunity to do that. So I think that many people, especially many young, um, you know, young adults today, are, 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 are in, whether they're in college or they're finishing college, they realize they've never really had time to explore their own interests. They never, they don't even really know what they like or don't like. They've been doing all this stuff in school and they kind of pursue, well, I got a good grade in this, so maybe this is what I ought to be doing. Or everybody tells me that, um, you know, that an MBA, that a master of business association, business degree would be a good idea so I can go on in business. So there's money to be made there, so let me do that. Or somebody sa says to themselves, well, it's a, uh, People, you know, a doctor is a very prestigious career, so let me become a doctor. They're thinking in terms of sort of, other people's judgments and they're not really thinking wow do I really love business <laughs> you know do mm -hmm. I really love caring for people and being a doctor was is this do I really have a passion for this and so I think that one thing that I really believe is helpful for um, kids who've been through the standard school system is when they finish high school don't go directly on to college take a little time off mm -hmm. take what some people call a gap year and just explore the world a little bit if you can afford to do it or get a even a low-paying job and support yourself and um, and try out different things or if you can get into some kind of a program if you can be a apprentice in various realms of work that you think might be interesting to you it's a way of of trying things out and if you haven't done that and you've graduated from college you can still do that after college I think the problem is people are going all the way through they're 22 years old finished all of the schooling and now they don't really know what they like to do <laughs> and you need to take some time to figure that out you know, I used to have conversations with, um, I, I'm not, I'm retired from teaching now, but when I was still teaching, I would sometimes have conversations with my students in which I would, um, I would ask them, you know, when you have free time, what is it that you really like to do? And they would really have to think about that. It wasn't obvious, but somebody might say, well, you know, I, I, uh, I've had some free time where I went out camping in the woods and I just really liked the woods. And then later on in the same conversation, I would say, what, well, what are you thinking of um, as a career? What are you thinking of going on when you graduate? And, and the person would say, well, you know, I'm thinking of going on into business administration. And I'll sort of stop and ask why and they'll say something about well there's good money in it and then I'll say well you know a little while ago in this conversation you told me how much you love the woods 
have you ever thought about being a forest ranger? <laughs> you know, well, they never thought about that. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. people are not making a connection between, you know, my work is going to take a lot of my time <laughs> in my in my future life. Shouldn't I be doing something that I really want to do? And and how do I judge what I want to do? Probably the best judgment of what you want to do is what you find yourself doing in those maybe rare times when you actually are free to do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were, we sort of, I'm kind of projecting a bit, but even if we look at uh, almost just, you know, our society as a whole, we, we were experiencing the most school generation that's, you know, ever existed coming with our, our millennials and, and the ones that are coming out of school now. Uh, as uh, I hire uh, new grads almost exclu exclusively at my company, and it's a very frustrating experience finding finding people with 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 sort of that that passion light on and i, I think well, that can probably say the same thing absolutely i mean it's it's interesting to me that you bring up this idea of taking a gap year and maybe going and apprenticing somewhere because that's what i do on a day-to-day -day basis uh, we take young people at the company I, I work with praxis and we put them into apprenticeships at different companies and a lot of them come right out of high school and I've noticed that there are two large groups, and this is one of the things that got me really, really interested in your work initially, Dr. Gray. Uh, there are two groups that we tend to deal with. One is, you know, very high achieving young people through the school system. They come out and they actually have at least enough self-knowledge or enough courage to go and take a gap year, which is something I did not have and I wish I had <laughs> in uh -huh. retrospect. And by the end of the year that they're done working with the company we place them with, they know more about themselves than they were able to discover in 12 years of going through and doing the work yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis. The other group that I find really interesting, we tend to attract a lot of people who are homeschooled or unschooled, and they have a very clear idea of what they want to do. Uh -huh. and it's not it's not kind of like an exogenous idea. It's like that someone imposed it onto them. They know, oh, I want to go do something related to this because I've had an opportunity to actually engage with it. So... I, I find it fascinating how someone can learn more about themselves on almost a, a philosophical level in, you know, nine, 10 months than they end up learning in 12 years when it's forced on them. Yeah, no, I, that doesn't surprise me at all. And, um, you know, people you learn, you learn, you know, play is the ideal situation for learning about yourself because you're out there um, doing ba basically play is doing what you want to do. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you play at different things. You love this. You not so interested in that or you love it for a while and then kind of lose your interest and you go on. Kids are kids play at various things. And one of the results of both my study of Sudbury Valley graduates and my study of grown unschoolers is the finding that a pretty high percentage of them, you can see a very direct relationship between what they played at as kids and what they're doing now as a career. You know, many of them would say, I'm doing just the same thing, but now I'm getting paid for it, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and what a great thing if, you, if your work is play, your work is what you really love to do. And this can span the whole range. You know, it can it can be carpentry. It can it can on, on the, at one end it can be mathematics. It can be anything. But um, fortunately, kids different kids get interested in a lot of different things. And um, and we have a world where there's a lot of if you're good at it and you're really interested in doing it, there's a lot of different ways of making a living. Ways that most 
kids who are going through school would never have thought of. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have even thought of, of, uh, of certain things as a career that, uh, you find kids who are unschooled or who are, uh, who grow up in a democratic school like Sudbury Valley, um, the kinds of careers that they go into. Mm -hmm. I'm going to point you directly at the, the sort of the thesis or the point of this, this, uh, audio program, which is de-schooling. And, and so you can just, uh, we might, um, you know, just, just tell me what you think, uh, off the cuff mm -hmm. when, if we, if, if you're a 35 year old or a 45 year old or a 55 year old, who's the account manager at PricewaterhouseCoopers and you've, you're absolutely miserable and you've only, you know, done that because you, you knew it was the right thing to do. It was the, you know, you, 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 you got your, you got the right SAT score to get into the right college and then to get that right job. Uh, is there any, any, do you feel there's any re reason that people who are well into adulthood should go revisit their educational experience and think about how it affects them or how they might be not playing enough or not be learning the way they want or, or just any reflection you have on yeah. adults thinking about how they were treated as children. Yeah. Um, you know, this isn't the focus of my own research, but it's certainly something that I think about and certainly something that I hear from many adults about. Um, and so I can't help but have thought some about it. Um, you know, it's never really um, too late, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. to find to find what you want to do, find your interests. I think there's sort of two, I, I think depending upon a person's situation and depending upon um, upon the relationship between their real interests and their careers, there's sort of two um, kinds of things that, um, that I might say to such a person. One is, one has to do with, well, is it too late to change careers? And do you really, is there something else that you really would love to do? And can you, you know, can you just make this change in career? Are there things that you just kind of, in the back of your mind, you always really wished you could do that? Or this is something you do, like that, that, like that kid who I said likes to be out in the woods, but he doesn't have much time in the woods. Do you find that you really like to do that, and maybe you maybe maybe you can afford to maybe you're not going to make as much money, but maybe your family doesn't need as much money, and maybe you've saved some money. Maybe you can make this kind of a career change. So that's kind of one thing is to really reflect, really say, look, I mean, this is you only have one life to live. <laughs> you know, you better you 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 don't want to give up your adult responsibilities. I think that's really important to maintain your responsibilities to your family and and so on. So I'm not in favor of this kind of sort of almost adolescent, you know, return of adolescence that some adults go through and mm -hmm. family suffers as a result of that. But within the realm of still being a responsible adult, are there changes that you could make which would make you happy and make your family happier? Because, you know, it's not... It's uh, it's not fun to have an unhappy father or an un unhappy mother or unhappy spouse. So that's uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is, and this is something that um, there are other people who have actually done research on this is changing your attitude. Uh, can you change your attitude about the work that you're doing? Are there ways that you can take a more playful approach to it? Are there ways, uh, you know, 
it's partly bringing play into your life and in even outside of your work and rediscovering what a playful mood is like. But can you bring a playful attitude to your work? Um, you know, it's it's definitely the case that you can have pe two people in the same job apparently doing the same thing. And for one of them, it's just a real chore. <laughs> They're watching the clock. They can't wait till it's over. They feel stressed by it and so on. For the other one, um, it's fun. <laughs> you know, they feel challenged by it. They're trying to... So, you know, the... Play is is activity that you feel you've chosen yourself, that you really want to do, and where you are directing the activity, where you're in charge of the activity. So it's very hard to feel playful in a job that you feel that you have to be in. You don't really have any choice about this. Um, because there's no other way you can make a living. And it's also hard to be playful in a job where you're micromanaged, where somebody else is telling you exactly what you have to do, which, by the way, is th these are exactly the conditions of school where mm -hmm. you have to be there and you're being micromanaged, you're being told exactly what to do and how to do it all the time. That's the worst kind of job. <laughs> it's the worst kind, it's the least playful kind of job for adults. Now, if you are in such a job or you think or you're feeling that that's the way it operates, can you change the way that you are operating even within that same job? Can you find ways to take more charge of it yourself? Can you find ways to, instead of just do it the way you're told to do it, can you find better ways to do it? <laughs> can you bring your own sense of creativity to bear on this? Because to the degree that you're bringing yourself and your creativity to bear, to the degree that you're taking pride in doing really well at it, not well in the sense that you're getting praise from your boss, but well, which I think would be a side effect, you would get that, but well in the sense that you feel, yeah, you're, I'm doing this, I'm doing this the way I want to do it. I'm a pro, I'm solving some real problems here. One of the it's one of the things that we human beings like to do is we like to meet challenges. That's part of what play is. Play children at play are always kind of moving from uh, one level to another, and whatever they're playing to to higher and higher levels, they're always in some sense at the cutting edge of their ability at whatever they're playing at. Because otherwise, it gets boring. Well, can you do that in your work? Can you? Can you see the challenges in it? Can you raise the stakes, make the challenges higher? There are there are reports even of people in what would appear to the, me the most boring kinds of jobs, old-fashioned assembly line jobs, which fortunately we don't have that many of anymore anyway, but where they would find a way to make it a challenge, like can I speed up the line and really make it work? Can I set a new record? Mm. You know, this, um, this is... Um, these these are ways that people can 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 take to change um, change their you know play is really fundamentally an attitude. It's how you feel. Do you feel self motivated about it? Do you feel this is a challenge? Do you feel you're you are um, being creative at this? And can you within your current job find ways to bring that attitude to bear? And if you can't. And that's a good indication that is would be worthwhile to try to look for some different kind of job. Tell us what you're doing now. 
Well, the Alliance for Self-Directed Education is a newly forming group. We actually haven't launched our website yet, but we're sort of in a preliminary stage of that. We have a newsletter. We have... um, um, we have some videos that we've produced, which some of which are beginning to circulate virally. Um, but the Alliance for Self-Directed Education is called an alliance because it's really um, uh, what we're trying to do is bring together the various groups um, throughout the country and even throughout the world that are already um, involved in promoting self-directed education. Where self-directed education is, you know, the kind of education we've been talking about where young people are in charge of their own learning. They're learning through pursuing their interests and following, um, they're learning through play and exploration. They're learning through doing what they want to do, they're learning uh, in some ways quite deliberately by preparing themselves to do the things that they want to do. But most self-directed learning is incidental in the process of life, in the process of, and, and life to a good degree for young children especially is play. Well, so we, we, so, you know, people who've studied this, people who've been involved in this for a long time know that it works. What we're trying to do with the Alliance for Self-Directed Education is augment the voices of those people who've studied it and been into it. So more and more people will hear about it. So people who are out there who don't, you've never heard of unschooling, never heard of self-directed, never, have never thought about the fact that children could grow up and be happy and um go on in life without doing um, traditional um, schooling. We want people to hear about it. We want to normalize it. One of the problems, one of the reasons that people are reluctant to do this, even those who have heard of it, is so few people are doing it. Uh, It doesn't seem normal. It it seems like an odd thing to do. And if you do an odd thing, you tend to get criticized by, by other people for it. You're your own parents may um, may tell you you're ruining their grandchildren. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Not sending them to school. Um, your neighbors are going to raise their eyebrows or maybe more about what you're doing. And we're very, we don't, we human beings, we're very sensitive to that. And so we need to be able to feel like there are, there are other people doing this. And we need the social assurance from other people that... This is not a crazy thing to do. I've been doing it. I've got grown children who are out there doing really well in the world. And so we need to uh, bring people together who are doing it. We need people to hear the voices of others who are doing it. And that's uh, a lot of what the Alliance for Self-Directed Education is. Our mission really is to reach a state where this is understood at first as a um, normal route, (laughs) You know, it's not an odd thing to do. It's a normal option. And um, I think once it becomes a normal option, it will become, for most families, the preferred option. You know, in the history of human beings, when people see that freedom is an option, that freedom works, (laughs) most people choose freedom. And I think most people would choose freedom for their kids as uh, the way of of growing up if they understood and believed that children will grow up just fine that way. Thank you for joining us. 
You can share this podcast and learn more by going to www.deschoolyourself.com. You may promote this series by rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Host Zachary Slayback is the author of the book, The End of School. Jeffrey Till is the author of the book, Rise Above School. Both are available in hard copy and Kindle at Amazon.com.